Hello and welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast, your home for stock market news and ideas to get you investing for a better return. I'm Marcus De Silva and we've got a cracking pod for you today. I hope you're all very well. The first thing I think to say from our point of view is we've got our new quarterly mag, which is going to be out next week. So if you're keen to be some of the first to get your hands on it, sign up on our website. There is a button there that sort of says sign up to the seven day course. But within that, you'll also get the new magazine as well. Um, Its overarching theme is growth ideas for your capital, which is important now more than ever as we see inflation continues its upward march. So it means that we've got for you today is one of our journalists who's writing in the magazine, Ed Bauscher. He's a fantastic interviewee and he's going to be talking about growth ideas in the US market. And, you know, it can't be ignored. It is by far the biggest equity market in the world. You really should have some exposure there within your portfolio. So it's going to be a really interesting interview, not only to look at that, but we're going to we do a bit of freestyling really and just talk about all sorts of stuff because Ed you know, he used to be a presenter on Share Radio and he has um, and written for all sorts of stuff and, and he has extensive knowledge on markets and investing. So he's a really interesting guy to listen to. So, yeah, we go into all sorts of different places there. So that'll be fun. Also today we hear how the FCA is encouraging private investors but wants to warn about some of the risks too. We also hear how changes to life expectancy could affect our pensions. And then we've got two big stories in markets. And then in companies, we hear what new service investment app Robinhood is going to be offering customers and their biggest deal to date in the multi, multi, multi billion pound streaming wars, drama. Don't forget, please subscribe if you haven't already. We really need you to. More important, actually, share the pod with at least one person, please. Retail investors have never had greater access to investing. And what our mission is, is to democratize investing and get the best information in front of you so that you can make the best decisions. All right, let's get on to company, no, not company, industry news. And we're going to start with the Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA, it's the it's financial services regulator and it wants us to invest 17 billion pounds as retail investors. So what the story is, is that they're seeing that a lot of us retail investors have got just boatloads of cash sitting around in low interest bearing savings accounts. And it's just too much. You know, you do need some cash. We always go on about the fact that you should have between three and six months of costs, of, of living costs. Um, as a as a spare before you get involved in any sort of investing, just in case of emergencies. But it, it seems we've there's just too too much cash lying around. Really, um, Laura Suto, who's a friend of ours at AJ Bell, she's head of personal finance there, said said this: the FCA's plan is to get almost two million more people to invest, as its research shows, eight point six million people currently have over ten thousand pounds of investable assets in cash, and it wants to reduce that by 20%. So if 1.7 million people invested £10,000 in the stock market, that represents a £17 billion influx of money to the investment market. 
So I thought that was quite well explained. And what's interesting is that almost diametrically, you know, they've, with, you know, they've gone out there with both hands. On one hand, they've said they want more of us to invest. On the other hand, they're saying that they're concerned that certain retail investors are not understanding all the risks that they're taking. They've announced this three-year plan to help consumers better understand the risks and also the regulatory protections that are provided. They say they don't want to restrict investing, but rather make sure the line is defined between mainstream investments such as funds and high-risk stuff such as cryptos and, I suppose, individual shares. So it surrounds this point, really, that Brits are kind of... It's this 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 kind of polarised thing where Brits are either too risk-averse and stashing loads of cash in low-interest-bearing accounts, thinking that investing is just too risky and that they're just too risk-averse to want to do that. So that's that kind of thing on one side. Or there's other type of investor who just jumps full-on into the deep end of risk, really, and can end up putting eye-watering sums in really speculative risky stuff like cryptos and individual stocks and there's nothing wrong with saving money in cash or in doing highly speculative stuff it's just all in the right proportions in order to move you along to your financial goals and if you're doing really speculative stuff the sensible way really of approaching that is in small amounts as kind of satellite positions around a core of a portfolio that's invested in funds that then can just just heft you can just get you to your goals so that that's what we would say is a kind of sensible way of doing that so the fca a bit concerned about that i thought that was quite an interesting story life expectancy is the next story so uh there's been some new research published uh on the day of recording from the office of national statistics the ons which do tend to reveal some quite interesting data and what they've shown is that there's been a decline in life expectancy for the fellas, for the first time since the 1980s. Whereas for women, longevity expectations have remained unchanged. And they're saying this is because of the coronavirus pandemic, which I suppose is, is understandable. So in the latest estimates, the ONS saw virtually no improvement in life expectancy for women compared with the 2015 to 2017 period. So that's at 82.9 years is the expectation for women. Whereas for men, life expectancy has fallen back to the levels reported in the period 2012 to 2014, and that's 79 years. So it's the first time since the ONS began this series in the early 1980s that they've seen a decline, and in non-overlapping periods, I may add. So we spoke to Interactive Investor, and uh, Becky O'Connor, who's head of pensions and savings, said, much of pension policy is based on the assumption that longevity will continue to rise, including normal minimum pension age rises and state pension entitlement ages. The ongoing increases to the ages at which people can access their pension needs a serious rethink in light of this decline in longevity. If lifespans continue to stay the same or decline further, there can be no justification for continuing to increase pension entitlement ages. Otherwise, we have to look seriously at whether we are effectively kissing goodbye to retirement as a concept in the UK. Because a man retiring at 67 who dies at 79 will only have 12 years of life after hard work in his retirement, which compares very poorly 
with the 20 plus years of retirement enjoyed by previous generations. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not anything does shift. On to markets, and there's two big stories there, really. On Wednesday, we heard from the Fed, and it said that in November, it is likely to start reducing its massive quantitative easing program, its $120 billion worth of bond purchases every month, which is quite interesting. It comes as they project inflation to run at 4.2% this year in the US, which is double their target rate of 2%. And they said all they want to see now in order for this tapering to start, as they call it, is for jobs to continue growing nicely over September. And of course, jobs are the other big thing that that central banks tend to think about. It also said that it expects inflation to overshoot for four consecutive years. And even though those projections are only marginally above the 2% target, so it's not expecting this sort of um, very high levels of inflation, what, of course, investors are wondering around is, oh, well, you know, is does this set the scene for potentially breakout inflation. I mean, there's a lot of factors in play, um, what they would call uh, cost push and demand pull factors that are in play, plus the expectations are starting to grow of inflation. So it does seem that like there's the, the, there is the potential for it. Let's not forget the deflationary forces, things like technology and, and um, global trade and things like that. But, you know, if it does, if it does get going, then it would be a big stinger for markets. Of course, that's what investors are thinking about. And, you know, a lot of assets are, are priced on the idea that interest rates remain lower um, for longer. So so if they were to start rising more quickly, then, then it could cause a big repricing in markets. Second story is in Asia. Shares are recovering in the back end of the week after becoming quite spooked at the beginning of the week by news that Evergrande, which is the second largest property developer in China and the most indebted in the world, was having financial troubles, surprise, surprise, and it could end up defaulting on its loans. So just to put it in context in terms of its debt, I found this quite remarkable. Its market cap, so that's the total value of all of its shares, is about $4.6 billion dollars. But its debt is worth $305 billion. So it, it, it is quite leveraged. And um, of course, a lot of that is held domestically. Unfortunately, there's, there's a fair chunk by Evergrande employees themselves. But there are big international high-yield bond buyers. And of course, high-yield means the higher-risk kind of stuff within the bond market, the lower-risk being investment grade. So it has caused a knock-on kind of sell-off in Asian high-yield bonds. Um, we saw yields. So yields, remember, move inversely to prices. So when they rise, it means prices are falling. Um, and they've risen to 12%, having started the year off um, at around 7%. And elsewhere, we also heard from the Bank of England. They met today on Thursday, day of recording. Uh, and yeah, they're a bit, they're a bit concerned about inflation too. They're saying that it may touch over 4%. Uh, during the winter but should moderate next year they do think the the gas price crunch is sort of exacerbating things a little bit um, but for the moment interest rates remain at 0.1 percent but it, it could start to continue continue uh, rises in that and the november meeting i think will be certainly one to watch out for there both at the fed and and at the bank of england um, so all in all 
for the two weeks since the last pod. The FTSE 100 is up 93 points to 7,116. The S&P 500 is down 97 points to 4,395. The Stock 600 is flat at 468 points. And the Nikkei 225 is down 369 points to 29,639. All right, let's get on to companies. And I thought it was very interesting to see that Robin Hood are going to start offering crypto wallets through their platform and start competing with some of the more pure play crypto platforms like Coinbase. And it, it's, it, what this does is it expands their capabilities. So they already have crypto trading on the platform. Now, with a wallet, you'll be able to pay for goods and services with, with cryptos. And it comes because quite a lot of their customers, it seems, are quite interested in cryptos. They've got 32 million customers, and I think around 60% of them trade trade this stuff. And not only that, but it, it sort of sees crypto as a big part of its strategic plans to expand internationally too. So uh, yeah, interesting that. And the share price, I mean, it shot up on the news. Its market cap is now $40 billion. So it is quite a valuable company considering, I mean, it was remarkable that really. It was launched only in 2015. And um, it was just one of these pioneers of commission-free trading. And you know, through that sort of became a real champion for retail investors, although that reputation got slightly damaged over the GameStop trading short squeeze because it, it obviously, you know, what the the retail investors, the Wall Street bed, bet, bets, sort of Reddit investors were trying to do was to, to stick it to Wall Street and and create a short squeeze for the hedge funds who were, who were shorting GameStop there. But the problem for Robin Hood was that it has to it has to deposit its own funds with the clearing houses in order to cover the risks of trades because you can place a place a trade and then it's settled some time later and that that time in between the company covers the risk that you know the trade doesn't settle and um and because of all the trading and the volatility around GameStop, suddenly that, that deficit that it had with the clearing house shot up to $3 billion from $124 million in just a matter of days. And the company basically didn't have the capital. So they had to just stop uh, trading in the, in, the, in, in the stocks that were being traded very heavily. So um, whilst... You know, whilst they explained that to the retail clients, it seemed like they were sort of sitting on the side of Wall Street there and doing it on purpose just to sort of stop this short squeeze on the hedge funds. So, um, I, yeah, it certainly didn't do their reputation any good. All right. And then there's Netflix. So I just wanted to know about uh, the rights that they've acquired, which is the entirety of Roald Dahl's works. And it's the biggest content deal to date, really. I mean, they'd already you know, licensed quite a lot of titles, 16 of them uh, from the Roald Dahl Story Company over the past couple of years. So there's this upcoming series for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which is being created by the superstar New Zealander Taika Waititi. But the plan is really to create something a lot more ambitious, really, according to Netflix. They kind of, they want to create this universe that ex- that expands across formats, including games, books, TV, theatre, all sorts of stuff. I suppose more akin to kind of like the Marvel universe that's been so lucrative for Disney. And it just represents this 
big battle that's going on at the moment for you know global content really i mean platforms are racing to draw numbers to their streaming services and really competing and splurging big on productions and rights i mean five years ago amazon spent 250 million dollars securing the tv rights for tolkien's works so you know with that they're creating this this the most expensive tv series ever made apparently one billion dollars it, it could be for for this new tv series of lord of the rings um and, and it just shows you just this the amount of sort of activity that's going on uh, in that world i mean amazon has spent eight and a half billion dollars this 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 may on on the studio mgm um they do stuff like um bond you know is one of their franchises and you know let's not forget disney i mean disney had spent basically spent the last 15 years just just you know writing checks and um and it's paid off you know they they managed to get 100 million subscribers in 16 months which took netflix like a decade to do um but it comes after you know having bought franchises like pixar that was 7.4 billion dollars in 2006 marvel came for 4 billion dollars in 2009 Lucas films, so Star Wars, things like that. Four billion dollars in two thousand and twelve, really. So, just loads of money in this this area right now, and uh, a lot of activity. Okay, let's move on. We've got the news, companies, and markets all done and dusted. Let's go over to our interview with Ed Balsher. So today we're going to speak to another of our journalists about their article for the upcoming magazine. One thing to mention is the mag's overarching theme of investments that grow your money. And of course, one place we cannot ignore when it comes to capital growth is the US, the center of growth investing. And it is the focus of Ed Bausch's piece. So to discuss its premise, I've got Ed here with me today. Ed, a very warm welcome. Thanks for having me, Marcus. So the first question has to be, why is the US the center of growth investing? I think it's partly cultural um, and, and it, you know, in the US, traditionally, they've always been keen on founding new businesses and helping them grow. And we've just seen again and again, the biggest, the best growth companies uh, emerging in the US. And we've seen that most strongly in the last 20 years, uh, especially in the technology field, the Googles, the Amazon, Facebook, um, Netflix, Microsoft, you know, so many of these companies have emerged and they've come from the US and technology for the most part, but not completely. We've also seen some big consumer brands emerge, big retail brands emerge, restaurant brands, things like Starbucks. They can be good growth stocks as well. And we've seen them in the US. And I would say that the only other region in the world that can challenge the US when it comes to growth investing is really the US, in, sorry, is China in recent years, where we have seen some great new growth companies emerge, no doubt about it, Alibaba, Tencent, uh, plenty of others. So some of your uh, listeners might want to look at the Chinese market as well, but the worry about China uh, is the political worry that there's been a bit of a clampdown on entrepreneurialism there and, and the Communist Party, uh, you know, put, putting down some markers there. We don't have that in the US. That is a country and economy that's still very open to growth and growth businesses. Yes, absolutely right. Most recently, we saw the regulators getting involved with gaming companies there um, and, um, and banning children um, to a large extent playing too much on games. So it, it, it does seem quite a lot of interference there, as you say. Um, but just go back to the US. I mean, where well, you can find growth businesses 
anywhere really. I mean, a lot of smaller companies and early stage businesses tend to be quite growthy. Why is it in the US that we've got so many top quality and enormous growth companies? I think it is the culture, um, the strong universities, the openness to um, uh, talented immigrants coming in as well. You know, you think about how many of actually of these great US businesses were founded by people who hadn't necessarily, their families hadn't been in the US that long, you know, Sergey Brin and, and others as well. But there's also a reality, Marcus, we can talk about why is it. The fact is, it is, it just is. It consistently has been the best growth market in the world where the best growth stocks are. And I'm not, you know, as I say, China's been the only challenge. I'm not seeing that changing. There are some good growth companies in the UK and Europe and elsewhere, but nothing like the scale we see in the US. And I don't see any signs of that changing, really. It just is the place to be. Okay, then is tell me how risky growth investing is. Yeah, that's 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 the problem uh, with growth investing. Uh, you you're taking a bit of a gamble normally that the company is going to develop in the way that you hope. And I guess it is especially risky at the moment in the US. This is the great problem is so many people have cottoned on to the success of growth companies in the US over the last decade that valuations, at least at first class, in first glance, uh, in many cases do look high. And that raises the risk without question. Um, because not only do your companies need to grow from where you're investing in them, but they need to grow a lot a lot to justify the share price that you are paying. So often you can only justify the share price if you see big, big growth to come down the road. Um, so, so that's the risk. Uh, and some people you know, don't want to play that game and that's fair enough because it is very risky. You can reduce the, the risk by staying invested, I would say for 10 years, over 10 years, at least some of these, especially the smaller growth businesses, you should see some of them flourishing uh, and hopefully getting a decent return. But some people temperamentally would rather take more of a value approach where it's easier to see, you know, this company made so much profit last year. These are the valuation of its assets. And I can sort of work out whether it's fair value or not. When you're trying to value a young company, a young growth company, you end up making all these assumptions about how much growth there may be over the next 10 years. And actually, if you change those numbers only a little bit, you get very different answers so you you have to kind of make a bit of jump of faith and just think i think this company is a future winner and then but equally from where we are in the uk don't pile in just to one or two companies actually build a broader portfolio of growth businesses and hope that you'll get some winners in there and that's why some of the funds and some of the trusts are a good way to play it in the end so it's fair to say that quite often growth companies are on quite high valuations and this exposes you to a lot of risk because it's all about betting about the future and of course the future doesn't always play out as you expect it to. Um, is it fair to say though that growth companies can be a bit more resilient to economic cycles? They can be, they can be, um, especially things like health companies you know, we'll carry on going to hospital, we'll carry on needing medicine and drugs. Uh, and actually, some of the 
sort of the internet and technology companies, I think, are now so ingrained in our lives that we'll carry on spending money on them, even in an economic downturn. There's, there's two, there's sort of two cycles you have to think about here. You have to think about the economic cycle. How much money are people spending? Is the economy growing? And you have to look at the stock market cycle as well. And those two surprisingly don't always move in sync. Um, so yes, with the economic cycle, a, a lot of these growth companies should be pretty resilient. Not all of them. You know, I said some of these growth companies can be consumer business. Some are like Starbucks, which has been a great growth stock. I would expect its business to suffer, you know, significantly in a real economic downturn. And even Amazon uh, would probably suffer a bit. We'd spend a bit less money, although we'd still be buying some treats uh, over the web. So there'd be some resilience there. And then you look at the stock market cycle, which is hard to know, hard to judge when the crashes come, when the falls come, when the moderate downturns come. Uh, and you could argue that some growth companies could be vulnerable uh, when that cycle changes as well. But very hard to know when either cycle is actually going to change. We've now had a long economic upturn and a long good stock market run as well. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the, the past decade has been you've wanted to be in growth and and you probably wouldn't have wanted to be in value. If you were going to pick a style to kind of choose, then growth has definitely been the place to be. Um, does that mean we face more risk moving forward being with growth or is it perfectly possible that it can, can continue to perform well? Well, it, you can argue it either way. I mean, the you might say now's the time to go for value after all these years of growth. And the argument against value is that some of these seemingly cheap businesses, their business models have been upended by some of the big growth companies. So you'll find some traditional retailers out there on seemingly very attractive valuations, but it's going to be hard for them to fight back as the likes of Amazon grow stronger and stronger and stronger. So that's the first point. Uh, and the second point is, yeah, I mean, I do worry about the growth value or some valuations of some growth companies and some growth markets. But I think the longer term trend of our economies is still towards technology and it's still towards other growth businesses. And so therefore, really, for the long term, you have to stay invested. One risky strategy would be to say, well, I'll stay out for a couple of years and hope there'll be a downturn in the growth stocks and I'll nip in and get them cheaper then. And that may work. There's a decent chance that will pay off. But equally, because of these big structural changes, that downturn may never come. So as I said at the beginning, Marcus, I actually think, yes, the long term trend is still towards growth. And if you're prepared, to stay invested for at least 10 years. I think there's a good chance you'll still do fine or even better than fine. But the worry is the current valuations, because we've had such an amazing good run. We have had this fantastic run, as you say. The other way to reduce the risk a little is, you know, over the last 10 years, it's been the Amazons, Facebooks, Netflix, Googles, you know, all the big names that have done so fantastically well, and some other lesser known names that maybe maybe there's more growth to come in some of the smaller growth players simply because they are still 
they've got that room to expand. There's only so much further Amazon can grow. It can grow more, don't get me wrong, but it's already huge. But some smaller players have got more capacity to double, treble, quadruple, grow their business by 10, 20, 30 times or whatever it is. So my approach is to say 10-year horizon at least, Yes, some money in the big well-known names, but also make sure you've got some money in the smaller, some of the smaller American growth stocks too, in the hope that, you know, A, because they've got more room to grow and in the hope that maybe two or three will prove to be really spectacular performances over the next 10 years in a way that Amazon or Facebook probably can't be. I mean, you've mentioned some of the really big growth names there. I mean, if we look at Facebook, Amazon, Alphabet, which is Google, Apple, Netflix, and uh, and Microsoft as well. I mean, are these even growth companies anymore? And do you think? I mean, you've mentioned that it might be quite limited for them. Do you think? Do you think they're starting to present a bit of risk in terms of where they can go next? Yeah, good good question. Can you still call them growth companies? That's a really really good. One. I think you can. Um, because I think I would say that I would expect all of the companies actually you've mentioned should be able to grow profits at a pretty decent lick, say, over the next five years. I mean, it varies from business to business. Perhaps, you know, maybe Netflix will be the one that will struggle most to do that, given the competition it's got coming now from Disney Plus and Apple and all the others. But, you know, they, I think they've all got a good chance of delivering good earnings growth over the next five years. And I'd say that's the core definition of a growth company. You're expecting profits to grow significantly faster than for the economy as a whole. So I think they still are growth businesses um, and they still have the potential to, to grow their market shares and grow their markets. The issue is, is, is how much. And I guess also there is, at least with some of them, perhaps the worry about some regulatory um, problems, a bit like what we've seen in China. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's possible that competition regulators might come along and say some of these guys are just too big and we're going to force a breakup. People have been talking about this for the last two or three years. It hasn't really happened. My hunch is it won't really happen, but you can't rule it out completely. I mean, Facebook, you know, could you, is it, is it even technically possible now to, to break Instagram away from Facebook? I, I'm not sure it is, but maybe regulators would try and force that to happen. Um, so that would be a thing to look at. I mean, when you look at Microsoft, I, perhaps there isn't much growth potential left in that core business around office uh, around word and all of that but there still is plenty of growth potential left in its cloud business whereas so many businesses are moving all of their their their, their you know their their uh, records their data their business effectively onto the cloud amazon is often providing that cloud for them but microsoft is a big player in that too and there's good growth potential for them as well google owned by alphabet they've got good potential to grow as well in the cloud as, as long as as well as growth in the core businesses for all of the ones i've just mentioned yeah, I mean, I was just going to pick up at one point there. I mean, we've certainly seen EC Competition Commissioner Margaret Vestager t- uh, taking aim at some of the big tech companies and um, uh, and bearing down on them. And and it seemed like we had a noise, a lot of noise from the US um, in terms of this. Do, do you think it's a big risk or do you, do you think this is just noise? Uh, I think it's a medium risk. I think it's a medium risk. I mean, I remember 20 years ago, People thought Microsoft was going to be really badly hit by the regulator. There were all those concerns. If you remember, you may be too young, Mark, as I don't know if you remember Netflix. Well, I've, 
I've I've seen videos of Bill Gates actually uh, looking quite sheepish outside courts from a few years back. Yeah, but I was a bit too young. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so you know, there was that feeling that Microsoft had destroyed Netscape and they should be punished and they should be broken up. And in the end, Microsoft came through it just fine. And my suspicion is that will happen again with Microsoft, Facebook, and anyone else in the regulators' targets. But I can't say for sure. It's definitely a risk. And you know, there's always risk in investing, and with these growth stocks, it is. A risk you have to bear in mind and as you rightly pointed out it's not just the american regulators the european regulators can stick their oar in and the chinese regulators they're mostly focusing on their domestic businesses but they could stick their oar in as well uh, with more global businesses so yes it's a risk but you know for me i'm still investing some of my money not all of my money but some of my money in these well-known global growth giants that we all we all know about and i'm doing it for the long term and i I suspect it will 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 come out fine for me over the next decade or longer but there is undoubtedly risk there and there's more risk than there was five years ago because the valuations are you know substantially higher well let's get on to that i mean the us really does look a bit expensive compared to other markets is now a good time to put your money into us it is I would be nervous if I was starting right now and I was going to put all my money in. Uh, I, but I think, you know, for the reasons we just discussed, you need to get some exposure to U.S. growth because these are the growth businesses that will prosper and there are younger growth businesses that will do well. You could also, one thing to consider is you could uh, consider dripping money in every month or every six months or every year that could be one approach if you're particularly nervous about valuations at the moment in the hope that as you keep on dripping money in maybe in 18 months time we'll we'll see a pullback in valuations and then you'll you more of your money will be buying those shares when they're a bit cheaper in 18 months time and you could even put all the remaining cash you have in at that point if you're more confident about valuations at that level as I said, though, five minutes ago, there's the risk that that will never come. So, yes, they're pricey, but these are a lot of great companies. And I would I want to put at least some of my money in. OK, then, Ed, let's get on to some, you know, potentially good funds that can give you exposure to these kind of companies in the US. Have you got some suggestions? Yes. Well, one of the simplest and cheapest is uh, an index tracking ETF. We all know about you know, the, tr- the funds that track the FTSE 100 and the S&P 500 in the US. Well, you can also get um, f- funds that track the NASDAQ 100. We've all heard of the NASDAQ index or the NAS, which tends to be made up of many technology stocks. Actually, the, the, the best known NASDAQ index has more than 100 stocks, but the NASDAQ 100 Uh, typically has 102 stocks, but we won't go down that road. It has some of the best known technology and growth names, and it doesn't have any finance stocks, any banks, which are often more of a value disposition. And the point is, you can buy funds that track this kind of index and pay a low charge. And so just some of the stocks that are currently uh, in, in the NASDAQ 100, Amazon, Alphabet that owns Google that we were just talking about, not all technology, you know, Dollar Tree, which is basically the American version of Poundland, has, has been a, a great growth stock. Um, and even Kraft Heinz, which probably isn't a growth stock really, so that's a bit of an exception. But most of the stocks in this index are, are very much growth stocks. A lot of them are technology, you know, Netflix and Tesla are already also in there. And we've got Starbucks, which I said, you know, has been very much a good 
technology, uh, sorry, a good growth consumer growth stock. So the Invesco ETF that tracks the NASDAQ 100 index, 0.3% charge, so nice and low, and you're getting good broad exposure to US growth companies. And also some growth companies that are a bit smaller than the Al Alphabets and the Amazons that are quite promising as one called CrowdStrike. It's not small, but it's it's growing fast. It's uh, an internet security business using the crowd, using the cloud. And so if you and I, we were both uh, customers of CrowdStrike, if CrowdStrike sort of discovered some virus on, on your business and helped cure it, then that knowledge sort of automatically gets transferred over to my business to help my business fight that virus as well. So it's almost sort of using machine learning to try and um, develop the latest ways to battle the latest viruses. It's been doing very, very promising business. There's some other promising younger, smaller businesses as well. So it's a nice, cheap, simple way to get some exposure to the American growth market. And probably quite a few of you listeners that just leave it at that. Put some, don't put all your money in. Please don't put all your money into US growth for the reasons I've said, because of the valuations, but put some of your money in there. That should do nicely over 10 years or more, I think. Okay, have you got a, a good active portfolio? Yeah, so I've got a couple of active uh, suggestions. One is an investment trust. It's called the Bailey Gifford US Growth Trust. It was actually the best performing of all investment trusts in 2020. It delivered a 134% return. And oh. that's because it's been invested in loads and loads of great US growth stocks. A lot of them technology, not all of them technology. A lot of the, some of the ones we talked about already, but another one, Shopify, which helps smaller retailers develop their online presence. And Moderna, which of course we've heard so mm. much about on the news when we think about um, COVID, well, needless to say, its share price has gone through the roof over the last year and uh, Bailey Gifford US growth has been invested in that as well. Now, I'm not suggesting that this trust is going to deliver 134% growth over the next 12 months. In fact, I would be amazed. My jaw would drop if it did so <laughs> because of the valuations that we have talked about. But, you know, these guys do seem to know what they're doing. The trust is relatively new, but it shares some of the same managers with another very well-known investment trust, the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, which is a more global growth investment trust um, so you know if you want to take a more global approach Scottish mortgage definitely has its strengths so it uses some of the same team uh, who are working across both those trusts so you've got a, a, a good good successful experienced bunch of investors who fingers crossed should be able to continue to deliver decent performance but as you know Marcus you know, past performance is no, no guide to future success. And we've all seen really good funds or funds that delivered really strong performance for a period, then fall away. So it could happen again. Another uh, active trust that I like is the Alliance Technology Trust. So obviously it's not in looking at the likes of Starbucks and Dollar Tree, the non-tech um, growth trust, very much focused on the technology trusts. It is a global trust, so it's not just US, but it is heavily slanted towards the US. So more than 80% of the value of the trust is invested in US trusts. Um, not as strong a performance as Bailey Gifford, but still good. 
um, and, uh, you know, not unreasonable charges. So the Bailey Gifford is on a 0.7% annual charge. And the Alliance Technology one, interestingly, is on a nice discount at the moment, an 8% discount. So the price of the trust is 8% lower than the value of the underlying investments in the trust. And that's pretty good for a growth-focused trust at the moment. Of course, as you know, Marcus, sometimes these discounts narrow and it's a boon for shareholders and sometimes they don't narrow and sometimes they expand. But uh, I, li- I like the look of an 8% discount on a growth trust at the moment. Do you know if the trust is geared so it has any borrowings, any leverage in it? I should know, but I haven't got those um, numbers in front of me, I'm afraid, Marcus. No, no, that's right. That's right. That's right. I was just interested because, I mean, that's one of the things I think investors should be aware of. Investment trusts can gear. They can make uh, they can borrow extra money to make extra investments, which increases your upside, but also your downside. So it does represent a little bit more risk. So that's something to to check out. Um, I think the other thing to mention as well, I mean, as Ed, as Ed said, you've got these premiums and discounts and having a little look at the long term history of those premiums premiums and discounts will give you a bit of an idea perhaps as to whether or not they might narrow or expand um, but that of course is another risk there's just these sorts of features with investment trusts um, that, that that can make them a little bit more risky I mean on the I just got the chart for the alliance technology discount premium in front of me at the moment and um, it is it is attractively unusually wide certainly compared to over the last three years but whether that just shows that some sort of um move against growth a bit of a sentiment against growth coming mm. through I, I don't know hard to say mm. yeah yeah it's interesting uh, how that can indicate um those sorts of factors because it's the buying and selling pressure it's what's going on in the market so how attractive those shares are um i think the other interesting thing to note as well is that um you know i worked on a on a um a global technology fund not not too long ago about five years ago and because it had technology in the name people would associate it with the dot-com crash and and it was very hard to sell whereas i think now we've finally shaken off that with technology would you agree with that ed yeah, I mean, I think it, it's 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 uh, it, it's ironic that many people now are finally sort of shedding those concerns and those worries mm. when the prices and the valuations are much higher than they were five or six years ago. But yeah, I mean, five or six years ago, uh, in hindsight, I wish I put more money in growth and technology stocks. I had some money in growth and technology stocks, but I wish I'd had more. And part of me, I always had that that thing in the back of my head saying, don't forget 2000, don't forget the dot-com bubble. So I think investors of a certain age, on the wrong side of 50, we've always got a gnat in the back of our mind and, and, and younger folk yeah. haven't, but um, you know, there we go. I've just, going back a minute, I've got up the stats on gearing. The Alliance Trust has no gearing as we speak. Well, on that note, Ed Bowsher, thanks very much. Pleasure. Big thanks to Ed Bauscher there. I think a really interesting interview. I mean, it's definitely if you're looking for growth ideas, I think the US market can't really be ignored. The sort of kings of capitalism and the, the wealth of opportunities there and also just the ability to sort of run those companies all the way up to these enormous, enormous players uh, that we see today, you know, trillion dollar companies. Um, so yeah, definitely an interesting market and some interesting ideas for, for accessing those, those, those growth plays. Big thanks to everyone for listening. I hope it gave you some food for thought. Do send me any questions if you have anything and I'll be happy to answer those. 
Uh, you can also sign up on the website as well if you want to receive that mag as soon as it's released. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.